Hi there, this is Will Brem, host of Fresh Ed. Last week, the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group hosted a webinar on educational privatization. The webinar brought together three previous guests from this show, Frank Adamson, Chris Lubienski, and Tamazin Cave. The webinar was moderated by my colleague, D. Brent Edwards, Jr., and supported by Drexel University's Global and International Education Program. I'm going to play the audio of the hour-long webinar here, but encourage you to check out the YouTube video, which includes a few PowerPoint slides and video of the speakers. You can find the URL for the webinar in the short blurb about this show. Enjoy this special edition of Fresh Ed, and I'll be back on Monday with my interview with Mark Bray. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the webinar. Welcome, everyone, uh, to this webinar uh, put on today by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society um, in coordination with the Global and International Education Program at Drexel University. Uh, we're excited today to bring this webinar to you. It actually builds on a series of conversations that were recently published as podcasts in the Fresh Ed series, um, uh, which is hosted by the co-chair for this SIG, William Brem. Uh, that podcast series, as many of you may know, is available via SoundCloud and iTunes and a number of other streaming services. Um, more information about that can be found on our website. Uh, we're also excited to be putting on this webinar today because um, it's something we've been planning for a few months, and we, we think it will be of interest uh, not only to the membership of this SIG, but also more broadly to uh, researchers and scholars thinking about um, trends in educational privatization around the world. Uh, but lastly, because uh, we're trying to build on a, uh, a series of webinars that were, that were produced in 2012 and 2013, uh, also by this uh, SIG um, those webinars were produced by the Center for Comparative Education at Loyola University, and they have been archived. Um, they can be found both uh, through the website of that center at Loyola University, as well as through the website for this big. Um, now, today's webinar, as I mentioned, will be focusing on theory and method in research on educational privatization around the world. We have three guests today who have been uh, thinking about and looking at this issue for a number of years uh, in their own research. Uh, first, we will have Professor Christopher Lubienski from the University of Illinois, and he'll be talking about some of his research related to incentivist reforms in the United States and the role that philanthropies play in that. Uh, then we have uh, Frank Adamson, uh, a researcher at Stanford University, who will be talking about some research and a book uh, related to privatization in a number of countries around the world. And lastly, we will have Temesen Cave, who works with uh, Spinwatch, who's a, a researcher, a, a scholar, and an activist um, based in the UK, talking about the influence of lobbying on educational privatization there. Uh, the uh, process, uh, each presenter will speak for about five to seven minutes to give a brief overview of their main findings and their research projects. Uh, I will ask uh, one question of the presenter presenters, and then we will have um, at least one round of questions for them from those of you who are tuning in. Uh, with that said, uh, I will turn it over to uh, Chris Lubienski to kick things off. Uh, but before I do, um, for those of us uh, who are tuning in, can you please be sure to 
mute your microphones. There's a icon in the, in the bottom left corner of your um, window that you're, through which you're viewing this presentation. If you could mute the microphone so that there's as little feedback uh, as possible in, in the audio. So uh, thank you. Hi, Brent. Um, I just lost your audio, so I assume it's my turn. Uh, thank you, Brent, and also to Will for putting together this series. It's been really a, a, a useful uh, set of conversations. I'm glad to be here and talk about this today. Um, so I'll be discussing a paper that's coming out from the Australian Educational Researcher, um, but I also want to say I'm, I'm also situating my comments within another project um, uh, on the global education industry. It's a book coming out next month with, with Tony Berger and Edith Steiner and Campsey. I co-edited that, um, which which deals with a lot of these issues. So my particular interest here is in what I'm calling orchestrating policy ideas, um, how different actors facilitate idea transfer through policy networks. Um, and this fits in with what Frank's going to talk about in terms of some of these global changes we're seeing in education policy. And also, uh, I'm sure the comments from Tam is in as well, where this is often presented as an organic process, but in fact, there's a lot of advocacy behind it. And so I'll be, I'll be looking at some of that advocacy in, in my comments here. Um, one thing I want to say to start out is there's questions about whether or not we're looking at a privatization movement. I know that's reflected in the title here. Um, I would say that uh, that's debatable about whether or not this is a classic example of privatization. What we are certainly seeing is, is marketization in, in education. Um, there's certainly instances where private managers are taking over schools, um, and you can see that, for example, in Sweden or Chile or some of the low-fee uh, schools in developing countries. But for the most part, we're not seeing the transfer of public or state schools to private ownership, as you had seen with other privatization movements, for example, with telecom or public utilities. In a way, this is a distinction without a difference, um, because we're still seeing marketization around schools. We're seeing public or state schools being put into marketized environments where they're, they're asked to act like businesses, private businesses. Um, and we're seeing this in terms of choice, competition, and, and emphasis on deregulation. Um, that said, and I'm going to talk about some organizations that are promoting those types of reforms, but that said, we are seeing privatization in two other critical areas, uh, one being the, the good of education itself. Um, education is a public good, but it's being treated more and more as a private individual consumer good. And most important for, for my interest here today, we're seeing privatization of public policy making around education. That is, the, the act of making policy is being contracted out to private entities. So um, the paper I focus on here is, it has to do with philanthropies and think tanks. And I, I worked on this with Jameson Brewer and, and Priya Goyal-Aland. Um, and we were particularly interested in how this happens in the U.S. in this instance. And we looked at a couple of examples in terms of school vouchers and also what's called parent trigger laws here. And it's being facilitated by new forms of philanthropy. We've had philanthropic interest in education for decades, of course, but now there's quantitative and qualitatively different um, uh, approaches to, to this philanthropy, um, moving away from more of a social obligation and more toward taking a, a venture capital or corporate model and applying that to how the money's used. And you see this, for example, in the effective philanthropy movement. Um, so think tanks play an important role in this. Uh, they are, are significant nodes within advocacy networks, and they bring a lot of legitimacy to the, the advocacy around um, certain ideas. So just to simplify for the sake of illustration here, we can think of um, 
of policymaking in terms of knowledge production, which is typically done by universities or think tanks. And then intermediaries um, play a role here as knowledge brokers. And they work with advocacy organizations or with the media to get those ideas, to get that knowledge out there. Um, philanthropies have been facilitating that by, by, um, uh, by promoting political support for key allies within this process towards knowledge users, um, policymakers, thought leaders, and public figures. And I think the philanthropists um, coming out of the corporate world, they see this in an, as an investment. They don't want to just throw money at a problem. They want to make sure that every step of, of the, the, the process is covered. And in doing this, um, one key factor we're seeing is that, that public pro- policymaking, which had traditionally been done by democratically elected entities, is being farmed out to um, private, often nonprofit, but nonetheless private um, entities that are, that are making policy and, and uh, setting the guidelines for, for how that's implemented by other public bodies. Um, and these networks are orchestrated or they're shaped by philanthropies. And think tanks serve as the driving force. And this happens in the U.S. on the state level, but also the national level. Um, and I think it's important to know that it's a multi-tiered process. So we looked at this particularly in terms of incentivist policies, policies that, that incentivize individuals or organizations um, to pursue particular outcomes. And, and we, as I mentioned, we focused on parent trigger laws and vouchers. Most people know what school vouchers are. And parent trigger laws are a new um, uh, wave of laws in the U.S. that allow parents to basically opt their school out of local democratic control and, and often have it taken over by a private management company, often through charter schools. And think tanks have played a key part in this. I would say that in a sense you would call them thought tanks because there's usually not a lot of a variety of thinking. It's usually about one idea, and that has to do with um, promoting market models. In our findings, they have less to do about producing evidence or, or new ideas, um, and instead they're often serving as the, the chief strategist for moving these ideas forward through the policymaking process. So that kind of sums up what, uh, what my comments are about, and I, I think it's a good opportunity to, to um, pass it on to, I think, Frank. Uh, thank you, Chris. And uh, thank you to uh, Brent and Will for organizing the, the webinar. Um, but I, I actually have a, a little PowerPoint that should be coming up in a second. There it is. So, uh, we have a forthcoming book should be coming out in March of 2016, edited by myself, uh, my Swedish co-editor Bjorn Ostrand and Linda Darling Hammond at Stanford. And, um, we're basically looking at six different countries and the impetus of the book. Can we go to the next slide? is uh, in Chile, we uh, saw a large social movement about primarily centered on education in 2011 with uh, huge numbers of students and families in the streets. And uh, we're asking ourselves, how did Chile arrive at this situation? Um, next slide, please. And so this book is really somewhat of a historical book, actually, because we look back and saw that in the 1970s, when Pinochet took over as a dictator of Chile, he began to enact the privatization theories of Milton Friedman. And particularly in the sector of education, he started uh, Friedman's idea of a voucher system. And uh, vouchers uh, basically allow... uh, families to take state money and uh, use it to pay for their children to go to any different school that they want. So uh, what's happened in Chile is that there's been a 
growth of uh, different types of schools, a, a lot of private schools, and that um, a lot of these parents end up topping up to the extent that they can on their children's uh, education uh, outlay. So they give $50 or $100 or $200, and that buys them a little bit better education. So the end result of that is that it really decreases the opportunity for individual children, particularly at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, and it further stratifies the education system and society at large, leading to, 30 years later, the protests that we just saw. Next slide, please. Conversely, when we look at uh, Finland, you know, Finland also in the 70s revamped their education system, but they decided to do something quite different. They decided to focus on equity. And um, they were reorienting after sort of Soviet area, area policies. And they decided that they, they wanted to have a focus on democracy and equity, as Chris was alluding to a, a bit in his uh, podcast uh, about the democratic nature of education as a public good. Next slide, please. So when we fast forward back to the current reality of what's going on, the world is shocked in 2000 when Finland tops the charts in the international assessments because they weren't really trying to be this high-achieving nation. They were focused on equity, but lo and behold, uh, the results of that system over a generation or two have been quite uh, sub substantial and quite um, systemic. They have stayed uh, the test of time. Uh, they, the results are changing a little bit now, but they're still, Finland is performing quite high. So next slide, please. So then we thought, well, we have this, uh, these two countries, Finland and Chile, which are on sort of the end of a spectrum, but how do we get a little closer to examining method methodologically what's going on in these countries and comparing them to more like and situations? So we looked at uh, Finland and Sweden, and Sweden actually privatized their system in the 90s, we look at the United States, which has been privatizing in various ways. And the United States is very decentralized. So you can't say something is to totally happening in, in, in the country as a whole. But there have been pockets of privatization, as Chris just alluded to. And Canada, which has privatized but then reinvested in a public way uh, in the Ontario school system in the early 2000s. And then we have Chile, which is a Latin American privatization movement, and Cuba, which has pursued a public investment policy for quite a long time. Next slide. Just quickly, so when we talk about what's happening, the, the larger theory of uh, Pazi Salberg, who's the author of the Finnish chapter in our book, is this idea of the global education reform movement, uh, which is the acronym GERM, which is not that positive. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's questionable what the GERM actually means, but I'm using it in terms of the germ of the global education reform movement, these privatization policies that have produced the kind of protests that we saw in Chile, where clearly the public is, is upset at the current status of, of education. And so this chart shows that the germ began in the 80s in Chile. It manifested in different cases in the 90s uh, with the vouchers in the United States. Sweden became marketized, and this goes to Chris's point that privatization is maybe not the right term. There's privatization, there's marketization, but the distinction is without a real difference. It's still a privatization model. And then we have the corporate charter school movement in the United States. Well, in Finland, you have this non-germ approach. And then ironically, uh, the PISA scores in the 2000s gave them a bit of immunity from the business community trying to push the privatization model. 
Canada resisted the germ because their voucher program was overturned in 2003. They democratically elected a different government structure and they pursued a whole system reform model that has had uh, positive results. And then Cuba has a bit of a German protection because they've had sanctions and a command economy that has prevented this germ from entering their uh, their national education structure, although it remains to be seen what will happen after the opening of the Cuban uh, economy. Next slide. And what we can see here is, uh, there's a lot of numbers here, but I just wanted to point out that um, in the results do show that Finland is quite high on the top, that Sweden's scores uh, have dropped from 510, which is above the OECD mean to 478. The Canadian scores have stayed quite high, while the U.S. scores are consistently below the OECD mean. And Chile has, has increased a little bit. But um, the, the four OECD countries do display in PISA over time the results of these, pro these uh, privatization Republican models. Next slide. And finally, when we look at Latin America, because Cuba doesn't participate in the PISA, you can see very clearly that Latin America is light years ahead of both the average and the whole um, continent that participates in the Cersei uh, and Tercei test, uh, but also significantly in, ahead of Chile as well. So we can see that these public investment results in the countries are producing higher outcomes. And I think the, the qualitative findings are that students are, are, are doing better, they're happier, they're more productive than the, uh, the stratified systems that are leading to protests and uh, movements against the profit-making and dilution of the public good of education in the countries that are pursuing privatization models. Um, so with that, I think I'm gonna pass it off to Temizen. Thank you. I'll meet myself. Um, thank you, Frank. Um, I'm gonna come with from a, a, a different perspective in that I, I don't generally write about education. I write about um, lobbying. So I work for a group called Spinwatch, which is a, a small not-for-profit company based in the UK. And we look at um, the public relations industry and the, lobby, the commercial lobbying industry, mainly in the UK, but sometimes in Brussels as well. Um, and the way that I got into this is that I wrote a, bit of a book about lobbying and a, a chapter in it is a case study looking at lobbying by the education reform industry, mainly in the States and in the UK. Um, and for the past uh, nine months, I've been continuing that research. So um, by way of saying I'm not an education expert, but um, I know a bit about lobbying um, and so what we do is we write about how lobbyists work, um, the tools and tactics that they use, and uh, Chris alluded to this, that it's, it's not something that organically just magically happens. It's, um, it's like building a bridge. You, know, you build influence with a set of tools, people, money, skills, um, and, and that's the way that you get influence, um, which is not to say that actually when, when it comes to the... Uh, education reform industry, particularly in the US and, and the UK, well, I'll, I'll talk about it in the context of the UK, there's not a lot of persuading that needs to be done. Um, sometimes you think of lobbyists as kind of parasitic to a system, they're on the outside and they're lobbying in, um, but in the case of the education reformers in the, in the UK, they are very much um, as one with the government and they are helping them to forward a particular um, agenda. Um, so 
yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting not seeing them outside. They are very much kind of insiders. Um, so just very briefly, so skimming through some of the um, techniques that I set out in the chapter and that I've been looking at um, in relation to this, um, uh, I think it's important, first of all, to think like a lobbyist. Um, in terms of research, how do I, how do I go about um, trying to find out what these uh, particular industries uh, are up to? And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the tobacco industry or the healthcare industry or the education industry or whatever. Fracking is a big thing that we're having at the moment in this country. Um, you've got to think like a lobbyist. They, they want to get a certain policy outcome. How are they going to do it? Now, it may be that actually to sit down and have a quiet word over dinner with a minister is the best way of getting particular policy outcome. But it may be that they have to launch a, um, on the opposite end of the scale, a full-on PR campaign because public opinion is set against them. So you need to kind of think how, how, well, how, a, lobbyist, how a lobbyist thinks. So just sketching through some of their, their techniques and tactics quickly, um, one of the key things, and you, anybody who's looked at germ, I'm going to use that shorthand again, um, is well aware of the, the narratives that have been crafted. So the messaging and the narratives um, in order to sell this proposition, both are politicians but mainly to the public um and a lot of effort has gone into creating the right narrative and what, what you do is you it's not you don't tell your story you start with where the audience is and you and then you you tell a story that fits um how they think about education and their concerns and their worries and you and you drill into their fears or their hopes um so there's been many um narratives a big one that i'm noticing in the states at the moment about being college ready kids being college ready in australia it was about kid, the fact that kids love um, technology, so therefore more technology needs to be used in the, in the classroom. It's, there's, a, there's a wide range of kind of um, narratives and messaging that's been used, um, but they, they are all promoting very similar policies. Um, a key thing that lobbyists do is, um, is it enlist the support of the messengers. So it doesn't, if, if you are a global education business, um, you don't want to be the one that's telling the public what the policy changes need to be. You need to get your messengers in place. And this is something that's absolutely pioneered by the tobacco industry, which is the third party technique. And um, Chris, you talk about think tanks um, in this context um, as, as messengers and as, as policy actors. I, I would say that actually a lot of the time, particularly in the UK, I don't know so much in the US, but they don't actually behave very differently from commercial lobbying agencies in that they... Um, they are third-party messengers. Um, uh, they provide, you know, access to politicians. They they behave like commercial lobbyists, um, and and I think it's it's very difficult to see the distinction between the think tank and and uh, uh, yeah, then think tanks as as commercial lobbyists. Um, so these these third parties, they need to be credible messengers. So um, it's always good to get professionals, teachers, if you can get teachers to put the reform message out. Um, parent groups, they're very good. We're, we're seeing lots of student voice campaigns. So this is about getting students calling for reforms. Um, so you need a wide range of, of different messages, speaking, messengers speaking to different audiences. Um, another thing that you'll notice, and it's not so much a technique, it's something that's just crafted, which is this um, uh, how to get yourself within these policy networks, some of which are very, very small and tight. And, and you see a lot of movement through the so-called revolving door. So um, 
These are very, very small networks with people who have known each other who move in and out of policy making um, and commercial lobbying um, and corporations. Um, so the revolving door is key. Two things that I just want to mention, which, which often don't get said in the context of commercial lobbying, we're, we're often thinking about them putting forward this kind of being proactive and putting a message out, is, is what they do to stop alternative voices getting out there. So they spend a lot of time, if you work in the PR industry, most likely you will spend half of your time giving stories out of the press um, and making sure that um, alternative voices and alternative opinions don't don't hit the mainstream. So, um, and the same goes for opposition groups. So, you, you an awful lot of time is expended by lobbyists on dealing with opposition groups. You want to um, uh, attack their credibility. You want to make them seem like extremists. So, there are lo lots and lots of strategy documents I've seen from commercial lobbyists in various industries where they it's, it's a classic divide and conquer um, strategy. You want to get the ones that you can't deal with, the ones that you're never going to be able to persuade, those opposition groups that are, are unpersuadable. You want to isolate them and make them seem like extreme fringe participants that don't need to be listened to. And then the more moderate NGOs and campaign groups, you want to, you want to start a dialogue, hopefully a constant dialogue with them that never leads anywhere. Um, uh, and, and basically persuade them into taking a more moderate position, but you, it, crucially you want to divide your opposition groups. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think, I think those two things, keeping stories out of the press and attacking opposition groups, are, are both important to remember in the context of, of um, the education reform movement. Um, certainly, just I'll finish on this, um, it's been notable here in the UK that we've had very similar reforms happen to our health service uh, as are happening in uh, education. So equally radical reforms. But whereas um, what was happening to our National Health Service was a, a, a topic of massive um, public debate and the government expended a lot of political capital on it, they were the incredibly unpopular people on the streets, column inches in the papers. Um, there was a, a raging debate, so much so that they had to pause the legislation. In education, it's been the entirely opposite thing. There has been very, very little debate, uh, apart from very well-crafted debates about changes, minor changes to our history curriculum, which may be important, but they are not the central issue. Um, and so there has been a very, very carefully managed um, reform process in the UK, which I think it's, it's important to unpick. And I suspect we see it elsewhere around the world, that kind of um, very, very close type management. And I'll finish there. Thank you. Um, I want to thank each of the three presenters for their uh, succinct but also very interesting opening comments. Um, I just had one question that I wanted to, to throw out there. Um, the viewers today and, and the viewers who will be watching the archive, um, many of us are engaged in research ourselves around you know, trends in educational privatization. And so uh, along with that comes challenges around theory and method. And so I was wondering if each of you could, could comment briefly on, you know, whether, whether you're doing comparative case studies in, in Fang's case or um, researching lobbyist networks or uh, philanthropist organizations. Um, what maybe theoretical tools did you, did you grab for? Um, maybe uh, there are relevant theories or frameworks that you could mention that our, our readers could, 
uh, follow up on and look into if, if relevant for them, or if you could mention perhaps some of the, the challenges associated with engaging in these kinds of research, uh, particularly because I think when, when we read published research, some of the more difficult aspects um, may not be highlighted in, in kind of the, the technical language of um, methods sections in, in published research. So I just wanted to throw that out there uh, before we open it up for a round of questions from the, the viewers. So thank you. <laughs> sure, of course, of course, it's a very big topic, you know, theory and method, but um, whatever uh, comments come to mind as being the most um, kind of uh, salient for, for today um, would, would be appreciated. I, I think maybe one of the academics should start. I'm going to mute myself. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, so, uh, in, in the case of writing the book, uh, one big challenge is how do you know what's going on in these different countries? And, and one of the ways that we dealt with it was to, in all the cases, but Cuba get a person from a particular country to write the case study. So they applied a lot of different research perspectives within their own chapters. Uh, we have a very heavily empirical chapter uh, on the Cuba from Martin Carnoy, and we have a lot more um, uh, sort of qualitative uh, work uh, on Sweden and, and a lot of policy description in Canada and the United States. And uh, I think um, when you're telling these, these large stories about what's happened in, over time in a country, which is very important to understand the trajectory, um, it, it is important to bring in uh, as much evidence as possible while also maintaining a narrative thread. Um, so it's not, we didn't do primary research in this particular case, but each author fought to bear their own, um, their own research and uh, expertise. And I will say in, in the case of the United States chapter in which I'm a co-author, uh, I did a lot of research in the last couple of years on New Orleans and we just published a report there and that was sort of a microcosm of the difficulties that are being faced in, in other places in terms of access to information. Um, the state of Louisiana was not very forthcoming with data about what was happening in uh, the, either the state or the local level of New Orleans. Uh, and, and that is a, a huge transparency problem in terms of the public uh, knowing what the effects of these reforms are. And I guess I'll finish by saying um, that the reforms themselves are, are uh, you know, privatization. We looked back at the roots of that move uh, in Milton Friedman. Uh, we looked even further back into Hayek. So understanding the historical trajectory and the marriage of the economics uh, of the situation with the education system and how they are related and nested in each other. And, and ac as academics, we like to be very precise and empirical. But at the same time, you can't lose the whole, the bigger picture of how these different sectors influence each other. And so what we've tried to do is bring those together as much as possible. If I could ask one quick follow-up question. In the case where the State Department of Education in Louisiana was not very forthcoming with information, what did you do? What did your team do? Uh, <laughs> we 
submitted multiple requests. We FOIA'd information. There is actually a lawsuit by another organization that's doing research that's been was ongoing for years, um, and that was decided in uh, for receiving the information. And you have to also remember that after Katrina, New Orleans is sort of a special situation because the you know there were incredible holes in data. But I, I do think that. Uh, all of the data was not shared with the different organizations equally. And this does go back to the politics in play because certain organizations did receive those data and have been able to publish more thoroughly. Uh, and their results are not necessarily even verifiable. And the, the peer review process is critical for us to be making local and certainly national decisions about whether we're going to pursue a, you know, a, an entire charter system has been constructed in New Orleans that's now being called a portfolio district or portfolio model, even ramped up at the state level. Thanks. Uh, Chris, would you like to go next? Yeah, um, and that's actually a great segue. Uh, this paper I'm discussing here is kind of an offshoot from a larger project I've been working on with, um, with Liz DeBray at Georgia and Janelle Scott at, um, at Berkeley. And we've been looking at these policy networks, including in New Orleans. So I would really echo a lot of what Frank just said. And it actually fits um, in quite nicely with my thesis here is that this privatization of policymaking. And what we saw in New Orleans is, you know, the people that were really promoting this, this all charter school model also had a, a kind of a proprietary sense towards the data as well. They wanted to make sure that their, their um, agenda was being shepherded through on policy making process and, and partly that means protecting who gets access to that data to those data and who, who, who doesn't um, this particular paper uh, it's part of a mixed methods project um, so we've been doing hundreds of interviews with, with policymakers and, and uh, advocacy groups um, and we've been using network analysis approaches so um, a good example would be bibliometrics if you're not familiar with that where you can you can kind of uh, map the networks and see how ideas go through these networks. Um, so in this particular case with around, uh, around the examples I discussed earlier, it would be things like looking at websites, uh, tax forms that are available on um, annual reports to see which groups are, are funding other ones. And then based on that, we really wanted to theorize the roles of different actors within those networks. So that, that's pretty much it. Thanks. Um, I, a few things to add to that. Um, in the, it comes back to my point about thinking like a lobbyist. I spend a lot of my time hanging out with lobbyists and reading what lobbyists read. I don't really read what NGOs write. I, I read investor magazines and <laughs> hang out at conferences with, with, with the um, uh, yeah, education reformers, um, which I think is useful. i just add to it that... Um, Again, it's this, uh, and using the, my experience of the UK, when we looked at, because I spent two years looking at the reforms that were happening in the NHS and the, and the role of the private sector actors within that, um, those reforms, um, and I did a lot of um, FOIing and um, went to a lot of events and the like, and we actually got a hell of a lot of information through FOI, the Department of Health. It, it was a new government and we just, we blitzed them and we got so much information out, um, which led to a, a, a number of stories. Um, and there was a, a sense that they were kind of caught um, 
talking about things that they weren't ready to make public. You know, there was one kind of typical quote from a very senior policymaker who then moved over to KPMG, who told was very happy telling a group of investors that the NHS will be shown no mercy. Now, to the British people, this was just incredible. But lessons have been learned by the education industry. So when you go to these conferences now, there is a very, very, they are, they are very guarded. They are very careful. They couch it in very different terms. It's not about profit making. It's not about, um, or it's very seldom um, about, uh, explicitly about profit making, which contrasts very much with some of the investor um, uh, bulletins and stuff that we were reading about private healthcare companies um, a couple of years ago. So I, I, I don't know if I've rather spoiled it or it's rather been spoiled and that we, we kind of had um, a big hit on the NHS reforms. We actually didn't stop, you know, they weren't, we, they still went through. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, um, in terms of what the information we're getting now at the Department for Education and, and the way that the industry talks about it is markedly different. So harder. And just quickly, uh, you mentioned FOI requests. Can you say what that is? Oh, freedom of information requests. Freedom of information, um, which actually, unfortunately, in the UK, we're having a review of our freedom of information law, which means a scaling back of it, which um, is a very worrying trend. Okay, thanks. Now, I see we have a number of uh, people tuning in. Uh, at this point, we would like to solicit couple questions. You can either type them in the chat box or you can unmute yourself and feel free to, to introduce yourself and to ask a question. And then we will, we will wait a second as folks might be trying to figure out the technology. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Tennyson, I was going to ask a, a quick follow-up question uh, just about um, access. I mean, have you, do people recognize you now? Are they less likely to, to speak with you? Or uh, even when you go to these conferences, for example, uh, how do you go about trying to gain, gain access to some of these uh, investors or reformers and, and what challenges do you face around that? You can buy a ticket. I mean, if you're <laughs> if you're funded, you can buy a ticket to go to some of these things. I um, uh, I, I wouldn't flatter myself to know. You know, I'm I'm not I'm certainly not known. Um, uh, if you take it outside of me and about my research, this isn't this isn't about me. But if you look at some of the um, work that's been done and some of which we've done on how other industries have dealt with um, opposition groups and that includes I suppose I'd be a citizen blogger which um, are an, an enormous annoyance to corporations <laughs> um, but if you look at um, the way that they talk about dealing with opposition groups there was a guy that I listened to um, a couple of years ago who was the kind of crisis, well, reputation management guy at um, uh, the UK office of Edelman, which is the largest independent PR lobbying firm in the world. And he was talking about the kind of monitoring systems that they have for uh, activist groups, citizen journalists, NGOs, um, and the very sophisticated tools that they now have, which is monitoring social media sites, um, uh, 
websites, blogs, and the like. Basically, if you if you badmouth a corporation in 140 characters, they're going to find it. I mean, if it, it's it's a um, it, it's part of it's part of the service, part of what what lobbyists and PR people do because it's about, like I say, keeping a lid on any bad press or any you know reputational issues, and then. You know, they they will monitor. I remember him saying, you know, they're always looking for the influential one. It's not necessarily the noisy one. They're looking for the influential one. They're looking for the person who is the source of the information, who is then spreading it out through social networks and the like. Um, and and then they have you know means of of of, um, of of dealing with people, whether it's you know the nuclear option, which is legal threats, or just a rebuttal um, kind of campaign telling them when they're wrong and the like. But, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the sophisticated nature. If you are threatening a multi-million, multi-billion pound corporation um, and there's a reputational risk, then they take these things seriously. Very seriously. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Now, can we... Solicit a question from one of the viewers. Uh, I see you, Ralph Rogers or uh, JJ, Steve Cleese. I'll ask Frank one. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I enjoyed this, the webinar very much, and I'm very sympathetic and agree with all of you. Uh, my question for Frank is, you know, they, they teach us from the beginning that correlation is not causation. And I've criticized the bank and GP for doing similar things to what I thought you might be doing in the book is equating correlation with causation. So there's a lot of differences between the privatization countries and the ones that are not germ specific other than privatization. And you seem to want to attribute the higher test scores of, you know, Cuba, Finland, and Canada, Canada. To, um, to their not being as privatized. And I, isn't that pushing the empirics too far? Uh, I think that you are, I, it's a point well taken. Um, and... I don't necessarily have a way to do a 40-year randomized field trial of Chile and not Chile. So I think at a certain level, um, the book is, is designed to call attention to these issues. And um, it's to, in, in the book actually uh, aggregates research within the different countries at different levels. The different authors have different levels of expertise. So you're going to find actually very, very different research methodologies within the different chapters that are talking about what's going on in those countries. And then you, the claims aggregated into the book level show what I think would be a correlation, but not a causation. I also think that, you know, we, we need to, uh, we need to really acknowledge the public uh, first of all, education is a public good. And secondly, the voice of the public that's really cropping up, uh, certainly in Chile, uh, 
that's a, I, I don't, I can't imagine a hundred thousand people or more than that in the streets about education in the United States. That's a very serious move. Um, and so I, I, I think if we want to avoid that situation, I mean, first of all, second of all, if we wanted to provide a high quality, equitable education system for students in, in the United States and in other countries, I think we need to look at the countries that are being successful. Uh, and so, and, and then the, when you look at PISA scores are not the only metric of uh, success. So I, I don't want to be narrow on the outcome side either. Um, but we are using the tools that are available, uh, into the, the best way possible. And I think the individual stories of the countries, uh, while not, uh, certainly causation based are compelling. Thanks. I have a question. Can I ask a question? Yes, Timothine, go ahead. And then I see, after that, I see one question in the chat box from I'll the... I'll wait. No, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll ask that one first. All right. Um, so Ralph Rogers has asked uh, for each of the panelists, what are the next steps for, uh, based on your research, uh, what are the next steps for research policy and practice? Yeah, I, I can address that. Um, I mean, certainly as researchers, we're going to keep looking at these issues that we, we think are of interest. But um, I think that the comments from the other two panelists, from both Frank and Tamazin, speak to some of the wider implications that really need to be considered. You know, Frank pointing to the, the protests in Chile. And I think Tamazin in her, in her podcast talked about the, the um, notable lack of a public dialogue around some of these issues. I think in the U.S., the closest we've really come to any kind of um, debate about this has been the common core, where you have people on the far left and the far right that are that have been agitating over it. They're pretty upset about it. Um, but it's been about that specific issue rather than about the process by which that issue was implemented. And so I, I do think the next steps that we need to facilitate as researchers is to encourage a, a fruitful public discussion about what we want in terms of the policymaking. Should it be democratically based? Should we be looking to experts or, or to you know, influential figures like Bill Gates um, what do we want from policymaking? And, and, and then I think that would dictate um, uh, our, our, our way of approaching some of the policies that are, that are under consideration right now. I'll, I'll jump in next. Um, so I think uh, at, at, at one level, there's an awareness raising that needs to happen. I think I talk to a lot of people about what, what's going on in, in New Orleans in particular, uh, which is research that we've, we've done in the past couple of years. And people really aren't aware of the amount of stratification and that's happening in the system. And, you know, they're not aware that the top tier school has predominantly white students is one of the best schools in the state in New Orleans. And then you go down the street and the bottom tier school is run by a company that runs correctional facilities in other, other country. I mean, other states. That, that's quite a, uh, a, a spread, a spectrum of management uh, in terms of a particular city. We're not talking about even state level. So uh, people are really interested in understanding what, what is happening uh, in those different environments, in those different contexts within the same city. And uh, particularly when it's uh, being proposed as a model to be uh, increased in a lot of different states. And I will say also, 
methodologically, uh, those findings, we did do a lot of research on for Steve and, uh, I, you, you can't say anything is causal because we didn't do an RCT, but we did a lot of talking to a lot of people and we used the data that we did have available. And of course the data were not readily made available to everybody. So there is that issue. And, and that, that kind of goes back to Tamazin's point about who's controlling the access, how are the political actors involved, wh- whose interests are being served in which case. And, and, and that for me, again, circles back to the need for awareness raising, because I think we need to have this conversation that Chris alluded to. And I think if I could jump in here, I think an interesting connection. Um, I mean, we started the conversation about next steps and and public awareness and democratic involvement and what do we want from our our policymaking processes. But at the same time, you know, thinking back to your research on your your report with Credo for New Orleans and and Chris's podcast where he talks about um, not grassroots but grass tops um, kind of um, activity where folks from outside the community come in and recruit signatures for new charter schools. Um, I mean, there's this there's this issue of public interest and public awareness but as you found in in new orleans frank people will defend oftentimes failing charter schools or charter schools that are not performing as well as other uh schools and so i think it's also uh, an issue to look more into and i'm not sure that i have an answer but i would um welcome any comments the three of you might have on um what do you do when on, on one hand you want public involvement and and public interests but what if the public, what, what if you as a researcher or as a public policymaker believes that the public doesn't know better? Yeah. I'm going to just jump in here real quick. Sorry. Okay. Um, on the, on the new Orleans piece, uh, you know, the, the whole premise of the book is that, that the, that we found that public investment actually does help uh, these these countries and what I think is going on in new Orleans is they, they're not, um, they've taken a model that, that, that has not worked over the last 10 years. And people have seen in the United States that there is a dramatic need in urban areas in the United States for improvement. And, and I think the implication of the book is that this model hasn't worked in the last 10 years, the public investment model, public decision-making, a democratic approach to education has worked in other countries. And it really honestly hasn't been tried in urban America uh, writ large. And so that, that is an implication I would say about the book. Yeah. And if I could jump in, I, I would really love to hear Tamison's response to the question. Um, because I think as researchers, there's certain things we can do, like setting up the, the juxtapositions that Frank's talking about, you know, we, we can, um, we can, focus some, some analytical skills on, on certain issues we think are understudied, for example. But then these go through these long academic peer review processes and, you know, we're not engaged in the Twitter conversation that's happening, you know, in real time. Um, so I'm curious about what, what Tamson would say as far as uh, uh, how, how is her work as far as shining a light on the, how is that going to have, um, what are the long-term implications of, of, of that type of, of, of work? I, I'd be really curious to hear what she has to say. Um, thank you. Um, 
and yeah, I work really differently. And I don't. Uh, I, I'm being a non-academic. I don't. I don't publish, and uh, except for through the press occasionally, or you know, that's the, that's the aim is to engage journalists in this conversation. Um, and um, and you know, it's not rocket science. What they want is something new. They want news. They they need new narratives. They need new things to get excited about. And I mean, one of the problems is that. I mean, we have a new education bill going through at the moment, which is, I think, akin to No Child Left Behind. And, you know, if you're, if you're failing, you're, you're going to be forced academisation, whatever. And there's, there's actually nothing in the press about it. There's, just, there's very, very little debate about it. And it's, it's partly because it's been going on for the last couple, you know, I mean, for, for, since Blair. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's very difficult. One of the things, and this is, relates to the question that I wanted to ask, which is one of the things that fascinates me at the moment um, is is the whole technology side of things, and this is new. This is um, uh, the entry of, of of new players into um, education. And if you listen to some of the more extreme voices, the sort of um, I don't know, not quite the Cato Institute, but the, you know, the, if you listen to some of them, they see technology very much as a way of um, if you seep. If technology seeps into schools, you can you can get rid of the blob. It's a way of usurping kind of teacher control of education um, and, a way, and a means of privatisation. I find this a fascinating thing. And actually, when you go to these education investor conferences, this is where the buzz is. This is this is what's new. This is the news, and particularly data driven um, uh, education. I found fascinating. Um, and it's not like I've done a lot of research on it, but I'm fascinated by the fact that there isn't any conversation about uh, education data in the context of, for example, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. I mean, it's it's we we've ha- we're having a conversation about the NHS database um, in this country, but not education um, data, um, and which is interesting because according to somebody in the States, we have a very gutsy approach to data liberalisation, <laughs> which is, we don't give a shit, just give it to anybody. You know? so, so I think these are all new conversations um, that journalists are going to get excited about. And you can talk about the schools markets in this context. You can talk about um, accountability and testing in, in, in the context of data-driven education and things. So you can bring another uh, sort of slightly older com- conversations but within a slightly new framing so I think I think it's about it's about this newness newness I can follow up on that that's really encouraging to hear and it's it's so uh, comforting to know that people like you are are doing work it's just so critical and and, and you know in tandem with what researchers are doing yeah. I, I would say that um the, the idea was brought up earlier as far as grass tops, advocacy and grassroots. And another concept that we um, point to in, in the paper is the idea of pesticides. And I think of that um, in terms of what Tamison said as far as uh, a lot of the efforts of lobbyists are to kind of um, uh, suppress any kind of alternative voices. And we're definitely seeing that in, in uh in the research around advocacy in the U.S. And Frank mentions that happening to some extent in New Orleans, who gets access to the data, for example. So that really points to, I think, some responsibility for researchers um, is to, to resist that kind of effort to apply pesticides to any, any kind of uh, opposition or alternative voices that are, that are um, resisting that, uh, the, the, the reform agendas. 
you know, we need to say what the data is, is saying, and um, we need to make sure that our voices are heard in that in that debate, um, and not be crowded out by people that have you know pretty substantial media presence. Uh, uh, you know, have an army of uh, of public relations people working for them, you know, and, and a lot of us have other things to do <laughs> in addition to, to our research. So I, I, I think it puts a public responsibility on, on researchers in order to engage in these public dialogues as much as, as, as possible and make sure that, you know, honest, objective treatment of the data is available um, in, in juxtaposition to what we're seeing from some of these advocacy groups. Definitely. Can I just uh, comment on that or do you want to... Yeah, I was wondering if you wanted to, to comment, and then you had mentioned before that you had a question. Maybe that question could be the, the last one to wrap up. I suppose my question was, was to what extent um, are they aware of people looking at this kind of the whole data agenda? Um, and uh, I suppose the, the, the involvement of um, some very large technology players um, in, in schools, um, and to what extent that is. A concern. So that was that was kind of my uh, broad question. But on related to that is, I mean, you're talking about um, grass tops. We call them astroturf. You know, fake grassroots, whatever um, groups. Um, what we're seeing, what I'm certainly seeing with the kind of the ed tech movement is that they they describe themselves building a social movement. So mm -hmm. a social movement of innovation labs and you know maker spaces, and it's all very groovy. And there is not. There is so little dissent or questioning or anything that actually it it wouldn't be too difficult. You know, there is a real absence of any sort of questioning within those spaces. If you go to some of these events, it's um, you know, it's it's almost frowned on right. to dissent. It's more of a celebration. I'll, oh, I'll jump in with a, a, a comment on that, and, and then uh, a quick question that leads into that. Um, the you know, so uh, I also have been in a lot of different rooms. <laughs> I think we all have where, you know, you, you can sit in the one room where there's the, the activists that are don't want another test to ever cross the desk of a kid. And the common core is, is like, you know, satanic. But and on the other end, you have the these 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 I live in Silicon Valley, the venture capitalists and, and not all of them, but some of them. Are, are seeing global $4.6 trillion signs ring in their heads. And so I actually wanted, wanted to ask Chris a little bit, you know, I, I think, have you looked at all at the sort of spectrum of actors and their motivations in terms of, you know, a pure profit driven motivation by a tech company that wants to sell 800,000 of XYZ to a school district versus uh, companies or actors that are really concerned, you know, primarily about um, about the providing low income students with better educations than they currently get. Because I agree, they, they're not getting great education. Nobody's disputing that. Right. right? The question is how or how can we improve it? Right. So I'm wondering, uh, it, you know, have you looked at, at the kind of nuances between actors? Right. That's a wonderful question. And I can say based on our interview data and, and other um, data sources, I have limited insights into the motivations of, of a lot of these actors. Right. 
Um, I would say that I'm quite interested in how they're using evidence and making their decisions. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot that are seeing you know dollar signs to profit motive, and they also see that as a good thing that you know that um, if if companies can make money teaching kids, then they should be allowed to do that, and it builds in incentives into the system. I would suggest that you know some of the evidence on that is you know look at the for profit college scandals in the U.S. as an example. Some of the evidence suggests that that's problematic. But I would also say there's a lot of um, very well-intentioned uh, philanthropists who are promoting these things um, because they want to have more equitable access, for, especially for disadvantaged children around the globe. But I'm concerned that the way they're doing it comes from their corporate mindset, that how they made money is how we should be running a nonprofit sector, a, a government sector like, like public education. They, they see that as a, 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 a appropriate and aren't really aware of some of the problems of applying kind of corporate sale management to the, non the nonprofit sector. Um, and just a, a last minute plug here. I mentioned we have a book coming out on the global education industry and next month. And, and some of the chapters look at exactly that groups like Pearson that, that promote themselves as a socially responsible learning company, but you know, their, their impact as far as pursuing profit does have implications for equity. Um, and I would say that's true. And with some of the other actors as well, that, Again, they, they may be well-intentioned, but they have a very um, narrow perspective about how this, these things should be done that doesn't take into account the fact that there are some sometimes detrimental impacts um, from these types of corporate management um, techniques applied to education. I think now might be a good time to wrap up. Uh, I'm very happy, uh, not only that um, we were able to have you three with us here today, but also that we were able to generate some discussion with the, with the viewers, but also across the three presentations. Um, I just also want to thank you for participating in the, the podcasts that led up to this. I want to announce uh, for you all, but also for those who will be, uh, who are listening now and might be listening later that uh, that podcast series will continue uh, fresh ed. There's a new uh, podcast uploaded yesterday with Tavis Jules on the Caribbean educational policy space. Uh, so please uh, tune in and stay tuned. Uh, we hope to be announcing in the coming months that there, will, will, that there will be another webinar in the spring semester. So again, I just want to thank uh, Frank Temison and Chris uh, for, the, for their time. Uh, very interesting um, research and, and um, discussion here today. So thank you again. Thank and you. And with that, we can go yeah. ahead and, and wrap up and uh, stop the recording. See you later. Thanks.